Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and the upcoming yet-to-be-revealed third Banneker Bones adventure. Although, uh, if you're following me on Instagram, I got too clever by half uh, yesterday, and for a little while I uh, posted just a clip of the Word document that said Banneker Bones and the, not realizing that the full file name was at the top of the photo. So anybody that was checking my Instagram for about 30, 40 minutes the other day, uh, you know what the title is. Everybody else remains a mystery. Uh, if you're curious what it's all about, we got an 11-year-old biracial boy detective uh, flying around on a uh, jetpack with his uh, cousin, Ellicott Skullworth. They've got EMP blast rifles to blast giant robot bees out of the sky. Uh, then they're coming back with uh, alligator people. And a third, as of yet to be revealed, nemesis coming soon, uh, early next year. Uh, if you're curious, you can check out Banneker Bones and the giant robot bees for free. For free as an ebook to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. And of course, the books are also available as paperbacks. Uh, and the first book so far is available as an audiobook narrated by David Radke. Hopefully, we'll get the second one out uh, before too terribly long. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some horror novels, such as the young adult novel Altogether Now a Zombie Story. And really, you middle grade writers, uh, readers, that's the place to start. Lots of violence, but absolutely no profanity. Um, that's all together now, a zombie story. And then if you want violence and profanity, check out The Book of David uh, by Robert Kent. And that is a five-volume horror series uh, about uh, an atheist who buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. Uh, so right away from that pitch, you know whether that story is for you. Uh, if you're curious, you can check out the first parts, five volumes, the Book of David, Chapter 1, the first in the uh, series, is available to download as an ebook for free uh, whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, coming up on the podcast uh, in the near future here, we're going to be chatting with literary agent Carrie Pursuto uh, and author Alicia D. Williams, plus a whole bunch of other guests. If you want to keep up with what's going on with the show, as always, you can find out more about me, more about our upcoming guests, more about everything at middlegradeninja.com. You can also read interviews with hundreds of authors and publishing professionals. So if you say, I'm tired of listening to things, let me read, Kent. MiddleGradeNinja.com, I got you covered. Uh, today, I couldn't be more excited. We're going to be chatting with Greg Millman. Uh, Greg, thanks so much for uh, clearing the time to be here. How are you today? Excellent. Uh, Honored to be here. Thank you for having me on. Thank you uh, so much for coming. Probably the best spot to get started is if you would just tell esteemed audience kind of a, an overview the should i guess the short short version of, of who you are and what you're all about sure so i'm a writer living in uh, hollywood and quick background i started writing professionally in news for msnbc and cnbc cable news then moved out to california to do the screenwriter thing and worked in tv and film for a number of years um then I transitioned to advertising and took my writing skills and wrote a bunch of taglines and commercials and advertising. And recently I've circled back to sort of um, kid stuff with a middle grade novel series that I just launched. So, yep. We're going to talk about all things advertising and, and screenwriting and everything else. Um, but first, let's just let's start right by right away by talking about your new middle grade novel. Um, so tell us a little bit about the Candy Kingdom saga. Yeah, so the Candy Kingdom saga is a story about two seventh grade kids who they're playing a video game kind of like Candy Crush. 
and um, as a team, they become like the world champs of it. <clears throat> and after winning it, they realized that the uh, video game was like a recruiting tool um, to find who is the best warrior to fight candy wars because there's a real world um, in an alternate dimension that is the candy kingdom. And so these two uh, seventh graders get transported to the candy world and they end up uh, in the middle of this um, sort of fierce battle between the good guy sweet treats and the bad guy sour powers. And they are obviously trying to help the good guy sweet treats um, bring peace to the candy kingdom. Love those names. How much fun did you have naming everything in this book? <laughs> that was a lot of fun. <laughs> so who was uh, the ideal reader for the candy kingdom? Um, I would say it is um, third, fourth, fifth graders, maybe sixth or seventh. I had a couple of kids of friends who were in sixth or seventh enjoyed as well. But yeah, mainly I uh, wrote it with with my son, who is now nine and in fourth grade and for him um, and for girls as well. But yeah, so I would say, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 in there. How does that uh, collaboration work between you and your son? It's you, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, collaboration go? Yeah, it was just sort of, um, it happened organically. You know, I had um, written stuff for kids before, but he was younger at the time. So when I was like writing for TV and movie stuff, he wasn't old enough to watch it. But now um, <clears throat> the reason I, well, the reason I started writing kids novels was because I was reading them with you every night. And um, I just got addicted to all these middle grade novels way more than I thought I ever would. Um, and just series after series we devoured. And yeah, I sort of just decided I was going to try to write one that, that he would enjoy as much as we enjoy these books together. Um, so that, that's how I started writing it. And then at night, um, when we were sort of doing bath time and getting ready for bed, I would just update him, oh, this is what I worked on today, this character and this event. And then he would start pitching me ideas like, oh, what if you did this? And what if you did that? And um, so yeah, it just became like a nightly collaboration where we would you know, go over the day's progress in the book and he would give me feedback and, um, yeah, he came up with great ideas. Some of the ideas for the sequel books, like at the end of each book, they end up going into a new world that's sort of related to the candy world. Um, and yeah, he came up with some of those ideas. So yeah, it was just it was just a fun thing to do together. So we, you know, we just kept doing it. So for the good of the series, it sounds like Hugh needs to never grow up. Yes. <laughs> exactly. My wife would be yelling like, "You're working him to death at night. Leave him alone." <laughs> and he's uh, i'm assuming over the moon with how the book came out oh yeah yeah he was thrilled very happy and uh even on the cover the it was funny the artist never saw a picture of Hugh, but when the artist did the boy on the cover it it looks exactly like you um just spitting image so he was he was quite excited when he saw that <laughs> For the uh, original cover, not the, the cover that's on there currently, but the first cover of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, I sent uh, my illustrator, Stephen Novak. Mm. Uh, I sent have a, a picture of my son. <laughs> Make him look like that. That's <laughs> awesome. I didn't, you know what? I Now that you say it, I probably should have done that, but I, I didn't even think to do that. So I, I just got lucky. <laughs> you, you did it the right way. <clears throat> well, eventually I uh, replaced it with a, with a giant bee, so... <laughs> I'm sure he was he was he happy about that or 
Um, honestly, he's he's five, and that's just daddy's thing at this point. So when he gets old enough to actually read the series, uh, then I'm sure I'll give him a copy with the original cover. Like, see, buddy, it looks a little bit like you, huh? Yeah. I'll <laughs> be like, why didn't this stay the cover? Come on. <laughs> and um, I wanted to ask you, at this point, do you know how many books you're, you're going to write? How, how far planned are you, and how far along are you on the series? Yeah. So I'm... Uh, writing the second book right now. Uh, I'm imagining it's five books that they um, they have. Um, there's sort of two more worlds that they go into. And then in book four, it's not quite a different world, but it's uh, something special, which I don't want to give away. And then you know, the fifth book, it all ends up back in our world. And all the madness and candy creatures and everything from all the other worlds will have a, a final showdown in, in our world. So that, that's the plan, at least, you know, um, to do five, five books in the series. Excellent. And then eventually when they make the movie, they'll compress them all and just do the last one as the primary movie because that sounds like the cheapest to film. That's right? it. <laughs> <laughs> it's done here. Yeah, exactly. So he was on board. He, he signed off on the, on the plan for... Uh... Yes. Yeah, he, he's the one who, yeah, definitely uh, came up with a couple of those settings the world for the for the next book so he's he's on board for five but i have to do all the work so <laughs> he's like yeah do five books no big deal <laughs> Seven. it's all the same <laughs> make them twice as long come on dad so um how because there is a lot of world building in this and there's a lot of a lot of great fun wonderful names for all of the the candy creatures that, that they're encountering um <laughs> You know, lots of it's not it's not the thing. It's not the it's not the brand name, but it's it's close. Right, right. We, we know what you're getting at. Right, right. <laughs> how, uh, how are you keeping all of that um, organized uh, so that your your world is cohesive throughout five books? And how far how how deeply are you outlining ahead? Um, I'm definitely only outlining one book at a time in in great detail, other than the sort of the overall plan of um, the arc of the series. Although I will say, as I do another start the second book, uh, Hugh and I are starting to discuss like character arcs across the whole five series. You know, where do we want this character to sort of grow and and end up in book five? So we we are sort of talking about bigger character arcs across it. But yeah, I mean, in terms of like outlining in detail, I'm just I'm just doing one book at a time. So now I'm you know into book two. Um, but yeah, the question of how to keep it all organized is a good one. So I, I've started color coding my outlines because there's two worlds, <laughs> you know, there's this world and there's the candy world and soon there's going to be other worlds. And then even within each world, there's different subplots. So yeah, I never color coded my outlines before, but <laughs> for this one, every time, you know, it's a new world, it's a, you know, the same color comes back in the outline so I can scan through it and see, oh, it's it's been a while since I hit this storyline or that storyline. So we'll see. Hopefully color coding will help uh, keep things straight. I've been using an appendix, which I actually, I, I make it available online because, yeah, why not? Uh, so if you if you head to middlegradeninja.com and click yeah. under the special features for Manic of Bones, you can see my appendix. And I've just got a list of every character in every setting. Oh, wow. Uh, so that I've, I've, and I use that thing at least once a writing session. 
I try not to, if I'm That's actually okay. drafting, I try not to spend too much time on there. But yeah. if I just if I need to remember something, you know, it's not it's not the same as doing like an online search that leads me to 10 different rabbit holes. It's just the one, the appendix that's there. Yeah. come in handy. That's pretty cool. I never even thought to do that. Yeah. And so when you add to the appendix, does it update live on the, on the site? Or, yeah. yeah. So there that's are... Great characters by the time uh, book three comes around that I'm having uh, to keep separate on my outline. Yeah. Uh, it's really spoilery to put them up there publicly. Uh, but everything else is, is game. That's interesting. That's, a, you know what, I, I'm, I may do that. You're right. There's so many characters and place locations and spells. That's a, that's a good idea. <laughs> I can't imagine anybody uh, happening upon it and taking the time to read it who hadn't first read the book and right. was already interested in, or people <laughs> listen to the podcast and are just interested in writing in general yeah, uh, and yeah. you freeloaders probably weren't going to read the book anyway <laughs> have at it that's funny i mean for readers if you're if you're really into the series having an appendix is is a great idea you know um so yeah i may steal that <laughs> what my uh, wife did this really nerdy um in the best way, um, was it her master's thesis uh, when she was getting her master's degree? It was a contextual analysis of The Gunslinger by Stephen King. Okay. Uh, so we've got multiple appendices for all the all the characters and all of the things in that. And I, I looked through that like that, but this was really handy. Right. And then I was reading one of the author notes for the fourth or fifth book, and Stephen King was like, "Thank you to the authors of this appendix. Really helpful to have had." <laughs> so he he actually read it, and that's amazing. That's right. There's a photo of him with it on his desk. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is so cool. Was she really psyched when, when she found that out? That's amazing. <laughs> oh, it's also a lot of pressure for you, the appendix maker. Like, Ooh, I hope I got it all right. Or <laughs> those future books. You'll end up getting an angry letter from Stephen King. <laughs> you forgot this character. <laughs> Well, if you goof because you read their appendix, I mean, could you publicly get angry about that? Like, look, dude, it's your book. You shut down yeah. the word. I'm just trying to help you here. So, um, oh, I wanted to ask you about uh, a lot of questions uh, about the book. Because um, obviously you've got uh, a sample uh, for book two. So no matter how far along you are in book two, there's a sample at the end of book one. So yep. for sure. <laughs> it opens that way. I assume you're, you're kind of exactly. That. It opens that way. Yeah, I thought it would be fun. Um, what was it? I was watching uh, the uh, Twenty One Jump Street movies. I don't know if you if you've seen those. Yeah, and then yeah, and in the in the sequel, there's just a ton of jokes about it being a sequel, where they sort of like wink, wink, nod, nod to the audience about like. Oh, the budget is bigger for this, the new office, you know, because it's like a bigger budget for the sequel. So, yeah, I thought it'd be funny if Cassie was like aware in sort of a meta way, like, oh, this could be the, you know, this is the sequel to the to the first one. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, I'm stuck with that opening. <laughs> I am Harper. I said Jonah Hill once, like, like I'm trying to remember. Were there, were there Johnny Depp movies? <laughs> I don't recall if there were. None. Exactly. But I read that, that for a while it was going to be a, a 23 Jump Street crossover with the Men in Black, which I was really rooting I for. I know. I heard about that. I don't know why that got scrapped. I think the whole world was excited about that. Yeah, I know. Would have been amazing. Oh, Hollywood. Yeah, Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then I wanted to ask you just for, I guess, an extra challenge. 
uh, for yourself. You've written almost every chapter. Uh, well, every chapter is from a different perspective. There's some repeats along the way, of course. Yeah. Um, but we're getting multiple perspectives on the story, which is a little bit unusual, um, which is good. It was uh, nice and refreshing. Um, so what is it that writing from those multiple perspectives each chapter allows you to do that a single perspective wouldn't do? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. I mean, I, I've seen it. I've read it in, in other books and in a couple of the um, middle grade series that my son and I have read. Um, the, the, did you ever read the Origami Yoda series? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Um, that's written from different perspectives. And then the Nerds um, Spy series, N period, E period, R period, D period, S period. Um, I think each book is written from a different perspective on the team. There's like five or six kids on the team. But uh, yeah, it was it was just something I thought was kind of cool. Um, and I also sort of didn't want to be locked into, although Cassie sort of is the lead character, I thought um, it's sort of a large cast and a, and, a, and a large world for the series. So I thought if I had different narrators rotating, you know, I might be able to have book two focus on this character and Landon and book three, maybe focus on a candy creature. So um, yeah, it was, it was a couple of different things. I thought, I thought it would be interesting also just to get this sort of perspective that you might not expect like, Oh, the mean girl who seems like she's a bit of a bully, you know, she has her own take on things and maybe she's not as mean as you think, or, you know, the reason she's being mean isn't what you think. So yeah, it was a couple of different things. I thought it'd be kind of interesting. And then also let me do things in the sequels, you know, like switch the focus to other characters. So that'll be continued throughout the five books. Every chapter will, will always I think so. be yeah. Yep. Yep. That's the plan. Very cool. Yeah. That sounds extra complicated for revision, though, because, I mean, each of the voices was was very distinctive. It's not the same tone throughout. Oh, my God. I had no... I mean, I've written dialogue for movies, obviously, so I'm a, I'm aware of, like, different characters have different voices, but when I, <laughs> when I got into writing the novel, it was so much harder than I thought ever, yeah, for it to come up with. Very distinct voice for each character that's narrating. I, it was it was definitely a bit of a challenge. Um, but w once you figure them out, you know you you can so sort of run with the character. Um, but yeah, I, <laughs> it was more work than I expected. Yeah, no, I saw that, and I, my Greg's been busy. <laughs> <laughs> and now, how did this book take you to write? And how long did it, did you also spend revising it? Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say one more thing on the voices. In the second book, they go to a new world, so I had to come up with all new accents because it, you know, I figured the there's a sort of British knights and pirates, you know, tone in the first one, but the second one is a different world. So, yeah, now it's a whole a whole other set of of accents and and characters. Um, how long did it take? So get some pirate and knight sensitivity readers to. <laughs> check to see how your world building went <laughs> uh, yeah. i'm sorry i'm gonna go ahead <laughs> so oh how long did it take yeah so well the actual sort of writing of it i started january 1st it was a new year's resolution that i was gonna write a kid's novel and, and finish it this year and i believe i finished june 30th so it was it was six months um writing and then but I had I had developed it as a TV pitch um, before I wrote it as a as a um, as a novel. So I had pitched it to a number of networks. So I, I had a full, 
you know, pitch deck with characters and the different episodes that was going to be season one um, and the world. So I, I had done a lot of the world building before I actually started writing. Um, How much time did you initially spend on the world building? How much time? Um, I developed the pitch over a long, a long period, maybe, you know, just coming back to it now and again, you know, I would get a pitch meeting set with somebody. And so I would work on it and pitch it and then they wouldn't buy it and I would put it down and then come back to it, you know, months later, if I had another meeting about it and, and rework it again. So yeah, it was, it just sort of developed over time, um, probably over a year or two, the, the TV pitch version of it. So yeah, that really helped because when I started to write it, the, the first season that I had broken out, obviously kind of worked for the first book. Um, so it was obviously, I, I had a head start when I, when I started. So the, the six months is, is a bit of a cheat. So <laughs> <laughs> no such thing as cheating in this business. You gotta <laughs> finish by God. It counts. Exactly. <laughs> um, so then, uh, six months to write and then what's your revision process or does that include the revision throughout? Yeah, that, that, that happened to include the revision. Yeah. I mean, I kind of revise as I go, you know, write a chapter, go back revise the chapter go back to the start and kind of come go back through um and then yeah you know finish it give it to friends who are readers they give me notes revise again so the i would say the revising process happens for me as i'm writing it really just writing is rewriting as i as i like to say i'm assuming that's uh, a skill you've honed over years of writing screenplays yeah yeah um yeah, just giving it to readers and and friends who I trust, or, and you know, to get honest criticism. So that you know, that's definitely a big part of you know TV writing and movie writing um, is is getting notes from other people, and um, which I've always found to be super helpful. Um, so yeah, yeah, I sort of have a you know my circle of fellow writers who are my readers, and then I read their stuff and give them notes. So I'm I'm sure most writers have something like that. Oh, they should. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Some> don't. <laughs> but the best ones do. Yeah. Um, so how uh, I'm assuming, you know, six months, you're not working just on this. I'm assuming you've got other projects in the hopper and other things you're working out as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's um, I have um, a bit of a day job in um, advertising and, and branding and marketing. Um, so I do um, um, a lot of sort of, you know, coming up with ideas for brands and commercials and taglines and, and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, the, the writing is sort of part of the day, but not the, not the full day, the, the novel writing, that is the, the, uh, the tagline writing is, is part of the day. <laughs> We're definitely going to talk about that as well, but I wanted to ask you, so are you carving out time in the morning before you start advertising in the evening? How much time are you putting in every day on just the, the book? Um, yep. I try to do like maybe an hour, an hour in the morning before work. Um, sometimes I get to work early and, and do it there because it's nice and quiet. And then, uh, yeah, at night after the kids go to sleep, um, I try to work from about, you know, nine or 10 till as late as I can go, 12 or one, um, depending if I'm really in the book and cranking on it, you know, I'll put in those three or four hours. Sometimes when I'm, I'm in the outlining stage, I'll, it'll be a little less intense. Um, but yeah, so it's sort of a, a morning and night kind of thing after the kids are asleep that must be a true love <laughs> to do first thing and then and then again in the evening yeah it's uh yeah it's uh it takes a lot of energy <laughs> I'm 
assuming that, that that's ongoing now with with book two until that's completed yep. and then yep uh, yeah that's the uh that's the process for now and then I'm assuming he was coming up with new ideas even while you're trying to catch up with the... yeah we uh we we uh, we've started book two um and uh I'm starting to ask him questions like okay I'm stuck here I need I need a I need a whole storyline for this character so um he's he's been assigned what he needs to what he needs to come up with so um I'll check in with him tonight and see if uh see if he came up with anything good <laughs> and then um I wanted to, to ask you about uh, publishing uh, because, you know, this is done in June. That doesn't leave a whole lot of time to have spent querying agents, publishers and all of that. So did you always know you wanted to go straight to the indie uh, route? Yeah, um, I had, you know, done the screenwriting for, you know, networks and studios, TV and movie stuff. And yeah, I just when I decided to write this as a kid's novel, I just thought, um I would just like to have total freedom. So, yeah, I just decided I, from the start I was going to self-publish it, just sort of write it as I wanted to write it, not not get any notes from agents and managers and executives, and um, and then just, yeah, put it out there and, and see if I could get traction with it. So, um, I mean, if it ended up going back and becoming a, you know, a TV show or, or a movie, that would be amazing. And, you know, I mean, if if a publishing house <laughs> came up to me and said, we'd love to publish it. Sure. But yeah, I mean, I, the plan was sort of self publish it and, and run with it from there. Um, yeah. You've dealt with enough uh, gatekeepers in your <laughs> day to day yeah. screenwriting and everything else. Not interested when it comes Not to Not interested. Yeah. It was, um, it was just really a lot of fun just to kind of do what I wanted to do this time. Um, you know, I mean, obviously I take input from, from my fellow readers and and from you, but yeah, it was it was nice to not have all, all these layers of bureaucracy on top of it. It's a nice thing about indie publishing is uh, I always make the joke when I when I teach a class on on self publishing is there is no right one way to publish. There is no right way to publish. There are better ways. <laughs> there are things you can do that are better than anything else. But if you go to a conference and you go and you spend some time with the traditionally published authors and you go and you spend some time with the indie published authors, usually the vibe is just a little bit happier on the indie side. Oh, really? That's interesting. <laughs> That's funny. So you, you've actually noticed the, noticed um, the difference. Yeah, well, they're all they're all singing and dancing. We got no strings. <laughs> they can do whatever they like. No puppets here. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, well, I feel better about my decision. The traditional authors are having a great time as well, and everybody's jealous of everybody. The traditional guys will come over like, what, you could just do anything? That's amazing, and you're allowed to do that? I can't do that. And then the authors, well, indie authors will come over and say, wait, your editor did what for you now? Your publicist did what? Oh, I need that. <laughs> so everybody's yeah. jealous of everybody still. Yeah. Grass is always greener. Yep. Worse. <laughs> None of that in Hollywood, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... um. You've already pitched it as a as a TV series once, but of course, after this podcast hits and the the book becomes a, a number one bestseller, because I'm I'm told that this podcast has that power, <laughs> uh, then you'll be out and you'll be you'll be pitching, and then theoretically you could be adapting a book that you originally adapted from a screenplay to a book now back to a, a screenplay, right? Yeah, um, and then maybe they'll make a video game based on the book, which has a video game based on the movie, but yeah. Something like that. 
<laughs> 20 years from now, the reboot musical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Broadway. Here we come. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Hollywood, and then uh, don't let me forget. I want to circle. I want to circle back and talk about MSNBC. Sure. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about screenwriting. So, how does one get started as a screenwriter? Um, I think there are a lot of different ways to uh, to break in, but I think for most people, it's easier to move to Los Angeles, um, where you can make connections and you know meet other established writers who can help introduce you to their agents and managers. So yeah, when I came out here, I um, got a job as a writer's assistant um, on a show actually through MSNBC. Uh, Lawrence O'Donnell, who's an MSNBC host, he has his own show called The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell. Um, and um, he had a NBC show picked up to series. It was He was on the West Wing as a writer and it was sort of not a, quite a spinoff, but it was a show about a senator called Mr. Sterling with Josh Brolin. And uh, I had met Lawrence at MSNBC and said, oh, I'm moving out to Los Angeles. Um, can you get me a job on the West Wing? And uh, he gave me his card. And so when I moved out here, I had his card with me and I gave him a call and his his show had just been picked up to series. And he yeah, he literally said, you start tomorrow. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I started the next day as his assistant and and then, uh, yeah, just sort of bounced around on a bunch of different dr network dramas. Um, it's, you know, sometimes you just you land in one area and then it you're just sort of in that zone. Like if you happen to get a job on an animated series, you probably get other jobs on other animated series. So, yeah, I, I was in the, the drama um, part of things for a while. You moved from New York to Los Angeles without a, a firm job. Just I'll get there and they'll see how great I am. And it's definitely going to happen. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I had a, I, I freelanced a little for the NBC um, at Los Angeles um, affiliate out here, but it was, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a guaranteed job. They, they were just like, oh, you're from MSNBC. Maybe, maybe we'll be able to hook you up with something. So yeah, essentially came without a job. Not a timid fellow is Greg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was young and foolish. Uh, no, it's worked out. <laughs> I know plenty of people that played it safe, and by God, they've got job security, and they really wish they'd gone to do what right. they wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. I did not go to law school, as my parents requested. <clears throat> A 401k looks great. Time for more antidepressants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Every, everyone in Hollywood's on antidepressants as well. well that's true. Yeah. Follow the dream. Don't follow the dream. You're still going to be American. <laughs> so, um, and I noticed that you were an assistant to, you have assistant to writer credits on a number of shows. Like I saw like seven or eight episodes of Boston, Boston yeah, Legal. Boston so Legal. Made thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. That was a uh, David Kelly show um, with uh, William Shatner and James Spader. Uh, yeah, that was writer assistant. You're sort of assisting the writers you're in the writer's room while they're coming up with ideas and you're taking notes on what they're doing and doing research for them on topics and you know hopefully pitching some of your own ideas and trying to get your ideas in the mix but yeah you're doing coffee runs um getting them whatever they want from starbucks so um whatever the writer staff needs done the writer assistant kind of handles so you're getting the coffee, then you come back and you say, oh, guys, I have an idea. What if Shatner was really Kirk the whole time? <laughs> and and, and Boston Legal script. was just we're, a dream. We're, we're doing it. Then is the hope that you'll be able to, to write that screenplay? Yeah. 
Exactly. You, you use the Starbucks as sort of a, a bribery, so they'll they'll listen to you. <laughs> enjoy enjoy the coffee while you're enjoying it. Let me tell you my idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, um, so how do you go from there to what was the name of your One Crazy Cruise? Is the is the movie with Nickelodeon, right? Yeah. So process from there to now official screenwriter. You've got a big old movie on your IMBD page that you wrote, sir. <laughs> Uh, how how what, what's that process like? Um, yeah, I mean, I, it, like I said, you sort of. Uh, the, I think the way most people sort of break in is if you if you come out to Los Angeles, you, you it's just networking, you know. So working as an assistant on those shows, you get to know the writers, and so um, I would hand them my scripts and beg them to read it, and then if any of the writers happen to like it, they would hand it to their agent or manager. So the the agents or managers are sort of the the gatekeepers. In Hollywood, so if you can get an agent or manager, then they can start um, booking you meetings with other producers and studios and networks. So, yeah, from after working on all those shows, I just had a, a series of different um, agents and and managers. Um, they come and go, and uh, yeah, and then um, just I think I worked on those shows for about seven seasons or so, and then. Um, and was sort of pitching my own ideas on the side while I was doing those shows. And then eventually, yeah, I just I just managed to sell a couple of uh, pitches on my own. So I, I stopped working uh, on, as an assistant on the shows and was just doing screenwriting on my own. So, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, you just sort of grind it out. You do a lot of pitches and, um, you know, hope, hope somebody nibbles on one of them. I know there are screenwriters, um, I've met a few, uh, that uh, make a handsome living for themselves, selling multiple screenplays that never get made into movies. Yep. Uh, you know, like they, they got paid. They're, they're, <laughs> they're living. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the joke is that um, <clears throat> most most screenplays never, you know, never get made. Um, so, yeah, there are tons of screenwriters who maybe have one or two movies that were produced and probably sold, you know, 30 <laughs> that never got made. So yeah, you can, you can have a nice career um, and not actually get things, <laughs> get things produced. Yeah. It's uh it's kind of, it's kind of wacky, um, but yeah. It's payments produced. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As long as you're getting paid to write, it's a good thing. Um, what, yeah. uh, what's different about one crazy cruise that that got greenlit, got a great cast, got the Nickelodeon. Um. It was, I, I think, just sort of luck and timing. Um, I, I had a, I had a couple friends who worked at Nickelodeon as assistants when I was an assistant, so I had some inside intel on, uh, on the kind of things they were looking for, um, which always helps. And sometimes your agent or manager or somebody might know. Okay, you, we're, we're setting a meeting with this producer or this network, and this is what they're looking for this year. You know. They uh, they burned out on all their, you know, dark, moody soap. So they only want upbeat, you know, cop shows or whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, I kind of knew the the zones of the of what Nickelodeon was looking for that year. And so I, I spent the time coming up with a couple of different pitches that I thought would would be a good fit for them. And, you know, one of one of them was a good fit. <laughs> just got just got lucky. But, yeah, having having some uh, the assistant network for uh, inside information definitely helped. <laughs> so you go in you pitch the idea they say that's a great idea let's do it then you actually have to go and sit down and write the screenplay or is there a lot of hashing out back and forth of 
How much um, of a can we allocate? How many settings can we do? How much freedom? Uh, do you have? You, yeah, I think usually the process is you you go and you pitch the the idea of the story, um, and that that meeting happened to have the upper level executive in it. A lot of times you just pitch at the lower level executive. If they like it, then they tell their boss, and then you go back maybe a second time and pitch the the upper level executive. Um, but yeah, once once you sort of sell the pitch, and then they agree to hire you to write it. Then you you just sort of move straight to outlining it. Um, you do a bunch of different outlines for them, and then if they like the outlines, then they put you to the script. Um, that's yeah, the usual process: sell the pitch, write the outline, then write the script. You're doing how many meetings uh, before you get to a screenplay? Then oh, a lot, <laughs> a lot, <laughs> a lot of notes, calls. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the Nickelodeon actually was great to work with. They <clears throat> they know exactly what they're doing and you know i happen to love nickelodeon and watch a lot of their stuff so i i had a good sense of what they wanted so um they were they were great to work with and you know they they obviously would would give a lot of notes and ask for changes but it was it was all things that made sense because they know their audience so much better um so yeah it was it was actually a fun process working with nickelodeon very cool uh, and then when you, uh, I was, I was going to ask you a dumb question you can't answer, so we'll move on. <laughs> I was going to ask you, are you happy with the results? But of course you could tell me if you weren't, not if you want to get the next movie made. So we'll ignore that question. And move yeah, on. <laughs> I will, I will say that it was, it was different than I expected. Um, but, um, happy, happy with the results. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> It's one of those things where I skip uh, uh, anytime I see a celebrity interview, unless it's like Michael Keaton and they're going to ask him lots of Batman questions. All right, I'll watch that one. But otherwise, they're going to say, hey, did you enjoy working with everybody in the movie? What, you mean everyone I'm going to see for the sequel? Yeah, they're great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, everyone who's going to, yeah, I'm going to try to work with again. Exactly. <laughs> later, like ten years, fifteen years later, somebody's got to write a biography that tells us they were trying to kill each other the whole time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's funny. So, um, are you, what, when? Because it's it's not a it's not a straight through line with your career because you're starting with MSNBC. You're doing very serious work with Lawrence O'Donnell and and, and Journal. I assume it's pretty serious. I don't know what the yeah what, it was yeah it was uh, so serious. Show that I, that's why I quit. It was, it was so serious. I burnt out. It was, um, a lot of war coverage. Um, we had covered Kosovo, the war in Kosovo. Um, it was around the time of the 2000 election disaster, a nightmare and, um, the Clinton Lewinsky, uh, all that stuff. So yeah, it was, um, I just burnt out on a news being very, very dark and serious. Every time there was a, you no, know, an airline crash, um cable news covers it so there's there's unfortunately yeah there's sort of a lot of death and destruction in in cable news coverage um so yeah i i kind of burnt out on it and decided that uh i wanted to do something more fun so how does that translate from that i want to write for children specifically so as i recall boston legal was not a kid's show yeah uh well when i actually i mean when i came out and moved from New Jersey to California went from news to Hollywood. Yeah, I, I wasn't actually doing kids stuff at first, so um, that was a little more similar. I went from you know serious news to doing sort of serious adult drama. So I was working on shows that were probably in their own way as you know dark and twisted as as some of the news. 
so yeah, the, the kid stuff didn't come later um, until I started selling some of my own things. And that, that just sort of happened. It, it wasn't a, a conscious plan to become a kid's writer. Um, just, you know, just so happened I had some connections and I knew people at Nickelodeon and, you know, things like that happened. Okay, so that was, I got you. I didn't know if you, you had a child and suddenly you're surrounded by all kids' type stuff all the time. I'm like, yes. No. Uh, no, I mean, I, I did have kids at that point, but yeah, they they weren't they weren't too young to be watching any of this stuff. So yeah, it wasn't because of them. But uh, but now that my kids are sort of the age where they're watching, watching and reading stuff, it, it's cool to be working in that in that area. Well, yeah, no, that's uh, the perfect time for it. Uh, and then, given the the wide variety of things you've done up to this point, I'm assuming that eventually you'll move on and I don't know, do uh, R-rated action movies or something. Yeah. <laughs> Could be next. Got to got to finish these five books first, and then. <clears throat> so that's that's for sure going to happen. And then after the five books, do you think that you'll continue to write specific middle grade books, or do you want to write other things? Um. Yeah. I. I'm not sure. I, I right now I think I'd love to stay in this zone, um, but then I think as as my son Hugh ages up, you know, maybe I'll end up writing something that's more YA, so he'll be you know reading it in, in high school. Um, but yeah, I mean, right now I'm I'm so obsessed and and into the middle grade um, books that that we're reading. Um, I mean, it was funny. Someone was asking me the other day. I'm like, oh, what are you reading? <laughs> I just started listing all these kids' books, and they were like, whoa. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just really love the, the middle grade zone right now. So, yeah, for the near future, at least. Have you got some favorites? Yeah. Um, we just finished the Timmy Failure series, um, which was amazing. Really kind of weird and, and absurd and um, kind of like Wes Anderson, um, but uh, in book form for kids. Um Right now, we're reading the um, middle school worst years of my life series, which is great. Um, we read the first Max Einstein, and we're you know I think the second one's coming out or about to come out, so we're gonna read that. And like I said, the nerds books were really great spy books. So yeah, we're sort of all over the map in terms of genre. Um, Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Um, but yeah, I will say the thing I noticed reading stuff with my son is that the a lot of the books are kind of dark and, and can be really gritty. You know, like Max and Max Einstein, she's homeless in New York. And uh, Timmy Failure's father, he has an absentee dad. And yeah, there's just a lot of um, sort of real world things that come up in, in these books for kids that I, I don't think they did that as much when we were younger and reading. Um, at least I don't, I don't remember the books being like that, that kind of real and dark in, in spots, you know, so... And then we grew up and we said, wait, the world was dark? Why didn't someone tell me about this? Exactly. Whereas today's kids will <laughs> They'll know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I can't imagine having read a book about a homeless, you know, lead character when I was growing up. I mean, just don't have any memory of, of reading anything like that. It was like Encyclopedia Brown and, you know, Beverly Cleary and um, Matthew Christopher wrote those sports books. It was all... Yeah, there was nothing very edgy, at least in, in what I was reading. Um, 
Well, as I recall, Ralph S. Mouse, well, now he lived in a hotel, but I know there was at least a sequel or two where he was homeless for a time, oh, really? getting the road on his motorcycle. And... <laughs> okay. All right. Maybe, maybe there were. Yeah. I don't, nothing stuck with me as like, wow, that's really dark. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't think I would describe the mouse and the motorcycle as gritty. <laughs> <laughs> for the time period, maybe. Yeah. Although that does amuse me when uh, when writers go that way with absurd characters, uh, where it's like you could have taken this anyway. It's it's a fantastical premise. There's there's no realism to this. Why why is their life dark? Right. <laughs> <laughs> they could just as easily be happy. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know we're uh, quickly bearing along toward the end of our time, um, so I want to make sure I, I ask you at least a little bit about advertising. Sure. Uh, the sure. people that haven't uh, religiously stalked your, your website here don't know that you've uh, done some advertising for what Deadpool, the newest Fantastic Four movies, some other things uh, along yeah. there. Yeah. So how, um, what, how does advertising impact your fiction work, and how is that impacting your marketing uh, for the Candy Kingdom? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, a lot of the, because I worked in entertainment, a lot of the advertising, um, things that I tackled were entertainment related. So like you said, like the, the movie stuff, I did, I did a lot of movie trailers, um, sort of movie posters and taglines. Did you edit um, the trailers? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, coming up with the, the words that like come on screen during the trailers. And, um, so yeah, so I was given those things in advertising because I had an entertainment and background. And then um, how would how did those things influence writing now? I mean, I'm not quite sure. I think um, I think advertising definitely makes you uh, keep things short and sweet and sort of punchy. You know, there's not much time in a in a commercial or <laughs> obviously in a tagline is four or five words. Um, so yeah, I think in general, keeping things sort of punchy and um, to the point helps um, generally whatever kind of writing you're doing. So that, that may be one way. So what's, uh, I know there's never a good advertisement for, or a good, uh, excuse me, uh, a good a good answer to this question. So I know that going in, uh, okay. but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Um, what, how do you know if an advertising campaign has been effective? How do, how do you judge that? I mean, they, they can do these studies they call lift studies. So after they, you know, run a campaign, maybe in a certain market, they can actually, you know, see did sales increase um, in that market. And obviously, there could be other reasons sales increased. It's, it's never sort of like a guarantee that this is the reason why. But um advertising agencies, uh, you know, at least try to provide that kind of data to clients and say, okay, we, we did this and we changed this messaging or we changed, you know, the packaging in this area and we think it had this impact, impact on sales. Um, that's, you know, that's sort of the hard concrete way. And then, you know, just in general, if, if there's awareness of something you're doing, you know, if you're launching a movie and there's, you know, online chatter and people are, you know, talking about it on Twitter and sharing stuff. You know, that's an, an, another way you can try to, you know, track did the did the advertising have any impact? I'm assuming if you go to somebody about a new advertising job and they say, "Wait, you did the advertising for Deadpool? That was a great, big, successful movie." Greg Melman, you must be the most. It was all because of you. It had nothing to do with Ryan Reynolds. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's all you, baby. Yep. Take credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> but then I says, you have to take blame for Josh Trank's <laughs> movies. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know we know Josh Trank didn't want to take blame for it. I think I think he blamed Fox. Um, so. Everyone, oh, everyone, yeah, that was the tweet heard around the world, right? Opening yeah. weekend, he came out and was like, they, they sabotaged my movie. Like, dude, shut up. <laughs> Let opening weekend finish first. <laughs> Josh Trank, if you're watching, absolutely loved Chronicle. When you write a children's book, please come on the show. We think you're great. <laughs> but um, I wanted to ask you about writing taglines. What are you seeing? What, what's, I know there's no secret to writing a, a good tagline, but what are common mistakes you see people making or writing taglines or just doing advertising in general and, and specifically toward, toward books? Um, yeah, I think that's uh, just a matter of, um, I, th- I would say for taglines, just staying on, staying on point, staying on message and you know, keeping things um, as short as possible. Um, specifically with, you know, taglines that are in print, uh, you know, I don't think people want to read super long rambling, you know, two or three sentences. Um, so I'm always trying to keep things as, as, as short as possible when it comes to advertising and taglines. So five words less is that's where yeah. that's the sweet spot. Yeah. Two or three, if you can do it. <laughs> What cracks me up are the covers that are a montage of scenes from the book, which I haven't read yet. <laughs> so that doesn't mean anything to me when I'm looking at your cover. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure after I finish the book, I'm going to look back at that cover and go, oh, yeah, accurate. Oh, yeah. Very. Yeah. Now I see. <laughs> well, I know uh, we're, we're coming right up here uh, to the, the end of our spot. So I want to ask, uh, one, when does Candy Kingdom 2 come out? When can we look forward to that? Um, I would say hopefully within the next six months to a year, hope, hopefully sooner than a year. Um, I'm you know already started writing it, so um, uh, promoting the the first one is is taking up some of the time as well that I would normally use to write the the book itself. So um, it might take a little longer than the six months that the first one took, but yeah, I'm I'm trying to crank it out as fast as possible. What uh, kind of promotion techniques are you finding to be most effective for book one so far? Um, I think doing a mix of everything, you know, um, doing podcasts like this. Um, I've written some blog articles just about, you know, my experiences in Hollywood and, and writing novels and obviously Amazon ads, Facebook ads. I, I think you kind of have to throw it all against the wall and, and see what sticks. Um, yeah. So just a, a mix of, of anything and everything. Uh, and then my last question is always, uh, if you if you had a time machine, if you had some way to go back and, and communicate with younger you and not not maybe the you of, uh, uh, of of earlier this year when you when you started Candid Kingdom, uh, but or earlier you just for tips on writing that maybe would have made your overall journey easier, what would you go back and tell past you? Um, I would say, I think the mistake I made was not figuring out what to focus on um, and just sort of um, being all over the place. I was writing serious uh, network TV dramas and then writing animated series. And um, I wrote a gritty 70s historical drama about um, like the weather underground, the uh, 
student terrorists in the 70s. So I was, yeah. I mean, I think like most young writers, you just try to, you're all over the place trying to figure out what you're, what you're good at and what you like writing. Um, but yeah, I guess my advice would be experiment and, and play around, but then definitely try to focus um, as fast as possible. Because once you focus, you can sort of develop your skills in that one area and, you know, develop your expertise, develop fans in that area. So, you know, just focusing um, faster than I did is uh, is something I would tell my young self. <laughs> and um, Rick, where uh, can esteemed audience find out more about you, more about the books online? Um, they can go to gregmillman.com, so G-R-E-G-G. And then M as in Mary, I-L-L-M-A-N.com. And uh, yeah, there's info about the book, um, the movie. Uh, I'm writing a blog that's uh, in character as the uh, an official from the Candy Kingdom. And the, the king is uh, upset that this author, Greg Millman, is claiming he wrote the Candy Kingdom saga because it's actually the real historical record of the kingdom. So I'm, I'm wanted, dead or alive. Um, by the Candy Kingdom, so the all the blog updates are written like that. So uh, you you may actually um, be uh, aiding and abetting right now, promoting this as a work of fiction. So you may you may end up in the blog. Well, let's let's uh, redo the entire interview. Tell me how you stole the history. How did you get your hands on it? Yeah, exactly. How how did I get to the Candy Kingdom to steal? That's a good question. Um, I think the king will be asking that when they when they arrest me. <laughs> and uh, esteemed audience, as always, keep up with what's going on with the show, what's going on with me at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, make sure you download your free ebook copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. If you're curious, also check out the Book of David Chapter 1 or get both. They're free. Go nuts. Um, Greg, I've been asking our guest to, to sign us off. Uh, thank you, by the way, so much for, for being here, for making thank the time. Thank you. Schedule. So much fun. Uh, but I've been asking our guests to sign off, and our sign-off phrase is the extremely ninja-like, hi-ya, and what have you. Will you sign us off? I would love to be honored. Hi-ya, and what have you. Hi-ya, and what have you.